Let's begin this morning in prayer for one another and as we approach God's word, and I'll, I'll pray for us. Our gracious Lord, we thank you that you have made yourself known to us in your loving kindness and grace, which we have not deserved a relationship with you, nor could we lift ourselves up to you, but instead you came down to us and you lifted us up, that you raised us up that you gave us the, the holiness and the power to live in it that we lacked by giving us new hearts, new abilities, a new slavery to a new master. We thank you for these realities which you have made true by your word, which calls us and brings us to holiness, which calls us and will bring us into your rest. And we pray that you would help us to be faithful witnesses of this very thing in the places that you have placed us, and that we would be faithful unto that end to recognize the, the best ways to do that, which is largely through simply living faithfully for you. And we pray that you would help us to learn more of your words, of your commands, of the teaching of you and what you teach us of ourselves and of your rest, especially through the Ten Commandments this morning. We pray that you would open our eyes to see wondrous things which are here, that you would continue to give us increasing light of the truth of your word, that we would walk in it. Amen. Today we're coming to Exodus 20, verses 1 through 21, famously known as what? The Ten Commandments. Ten, ten, ten words, says Mara. What you see that as you look at verse 1, it says, you know, Then God spoke all these words, saying this. And that's the focus. The focus is on God's words. They're not called the Ten Commandments until you get to to Exodus chapter 34. Then they're actually called Ten Commandments. And that's where you find out these sort of things get counted up and it's meaningful. <laughs> and as you look through this, there's some certain focuses within this section on the Ten Commandments. And I'll just let you take a guess on what the focuses are of the Ten Commandments. There's three of them. There's three things that are focused on, and you're just going to have to guess. But I'll tell you what it is in the Hebrew text later, but I'm going to keep you in suspicion and having to guess anyways for now. <laughs> What do you think that it's focused on? The Ten Commandments. Yeah, the Ten Commandments. There's certain things that are really highlighted in the text. Yeah, relationship to God. Okay. Mm-hmm. Holiness. That's actually one of them. But you're right. You're right. I mean, you're all you're all probably going to always say something true 
about it, but there's certain things and the way that the Hebrew language works, it says, this is the major idea. And it gives something that goes, this is the major idea. This is the major idea. And all of these other ideas will fit under them somehow. But one, one of the major ideas is holiness. Uh, the first one is actually right in the first words when it says, God spoke all these words. It puts emphasis right there, which then, what does that make you think back to in Scripture? Right, he spoke and he created by his word. And remember how creation week ended? Rest. Yeah, rest, and God made that day holy. That's the next two things that get emphasized. It's verse 11, and it says... Of, of the Lord, he, he rested on the seventh day. That's one focus. And then at the end of that verse, he made it holy. So the focus is, you know, God spoke these things and he rested and made it holy. So that sort of language obviously makes you think back to creation week. But why do you think that that's significant in this context, in relation to Israel at this point? You know, were, were they living in that day? Were they living in the holy day of rest? You know, were they holy? Were they following what God had commanded for his creation? Now, so, you know, that's how where we talked about the, the three functions of the law at this point is that it points out our sinfulness. Yeah, it, we can say it points out our unholiness, but it points to God's holiness, and it shows us that there's a separation there that we live in and that we're outside of God's rest and we need to enter into it. But so you, can't, you can't bring yourself into God's rest. Somebody else has to do that for you, but that, that mediator has to be all of the things that you're not. There has to be some sort of connection between God and man. So the three things we continue to keep coming back to is that the law it points to God's holiness, points out our unholiness and our need for a God-man mediator to bring us into God's rest. He would have to make us holy by his word, which you would also have to, to be God's word in order to do that which you know that that's fulfilled in Christ. But all of this stuff is building together within this text. Now think about the covenants that God has made with men at this point and how they're connected into this covenant that's beginning to be made right here. What are the... We're talking about the Mosaic Israelite covenant. You know, it's... Sinaitic covenant, whatever you want to call it. You know, before we get to that, what are the, the other covenants that precede it in Scripture at this point? Mm -hmm. Right. And what, what was the major focus of the Noahic creation covenant? Creation as a way to bring us back 
Yeah, and he gave, uh, he put his bow in the sky, which is, you know, speaking of his, his war weapon, but, you know, his, his war weapon, somehow there's going to be judgment that comes to get rid of all of the stuff that came from the fall, and it's going to bring people into God's rest. And it's a promise that God's going to control the stability of everything and creation to ensure that it enters into that rest. The sign being his, his bow. Next covenant, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, etc. Covenant. What were the, the major parts of that covenant? Yeah, it's you know it's the restoration of the three things that were lost in the garden, uh, you know, being God's man and God's land under God's command. But he's going to bring that family back into the place that he's given them to be under his blessing with no more curse. He's going to deal with the judgment problem to bring into his back into his rest. But what's left there, it's like you have the, the promise that the rest is going to happen. You have, uh, in a way, I guess you call it like the, the gears. It's like, you know, what's the things that are going to turn to make this happen? It's land, seed, and blessing. Those are, those are the things. It's, but how does it get driven to its destination? And you think the, the Noahic covenant, it's like the railroad tracks. Like the, the train has to go down those tracks. It can't go anywhere else. The Abrahamic covenant saw the, the train carts, you know, land seed blessing laid out on the train tracks. But it's like, but how do you get the thing to its destination? Uh, it has to have, you got to turn the engine on somehow and get it chugging along. Well, that's where the this Mosaic covenant comes in, it gives the instruction to do that. But what God is saying, how it works is, uh, you have to be made holy and obey me to enter into my rest. But what it points out is you can't do that. You, know, you, you can't fuel this train and you don't even know how to drive it. <laughs> uh, so it kind of leaves you, you know, I, in the whole analogy of the train tracks and the train, and I think of the Mosaic Covenant as you know the taxi guy that that tells you how you can get to the train. He tells you that you know you, you do need to get to your destination, but he can't help you to get there. He just ends up pointing out that you can't get there on your own. You need somebody else. But the problem with Moses's taxi is that the doors are welded shut. You know, on the side of it says "Do this and live." And you're trying to open the door, you're like, I can't, I can't, this isn't working. He's like, well, the point was to teach you that you need something better than this, this taxi to drive you there. And you need a better taxi driver than me to get you there. And so it's pointing forward to something greater. Now, where did... God's law begin in Scripture. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, but it begins in creation. Just like we're talking about, it has those ten God said statements in the beginning, and you'll notice that. I mean, one of the things that's probably a curiosity when you read the Ten Commandments is you. It's mostly some really short negative statements. You know, it's a, you, know, you shall not. You shall not. Like, well, why doesn't he just say all the stuff that you could do? <laughs> it's like, well, it'd be a lot longer then. Because the, the law is a law of freedom. You know, you see that even in the garden. You know, God didn't give them a bazillion laws to follow. He gives them one, but it was a law that taught them, you're free to do all of this other stuff. It, it wasn't that God was trying to demonstrate, you know, his stinginess and saying that you couldn't eat from another tree, but to demonstrate how gracious he was. You can eat of every other tree, <laughs> and there's a bazillion of them. So it ends up being a law of freedom, a law of liberty, a law of liberality to show that God gives graciously, but it's most succinctly stated in negative commands. And as you look through these commands, as we look through them together, see what they teach is true theology and worship of God. They teach you about his name, which is holy. They teach you about his Sabbath rest. They teach you about family honor, about God's thoughts on life, marriage, property, and truth and virtue being protected. And these laws were not just for Israel's sake. You see in highlighting those emphases, emphases, is that the right way to say that? Emphasize? Uh, it being God's words being spoken and about God's rest and God making things holy. The Ten Commandments are primarily about revealing who he is. It's primarily about his character being revealed. And so there's, there's an evangelistic purpose within it. And Israel is supposed to demonstrate God's character to the nations. And you say Israel was a microcosm of the world. It wasn't just, oh, you know, the Israelites are the only really bad sinners on the planet. It's like, well, everybody else watching was seeing their unholiness and God's holiness and how he dealt with them. So through their negative example, they positively taught God's holiness, and their Torah instruction was meant to draw the other nations to the Creator, which we saw that happen with Jethro. You know, as Moses told him about all the things that the Lord had done for them, Jethro thinks about how amazing their God is. <coughs> Deuteronomy 4, 6-8 communicates this idea. It's... it's he says to Israel, keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who when they hear all these statues will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as Yahweh our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? So you see, it was meant to put on display the character of God. That was in Deuteronomy 4, which we hope to get to someday. 
do you guys feel like this, our, our trek through Exodus is slow, just right, or fast? All right, Corey says it's just right, so I'm okay. <laughs> All right, nobody else needs to comment. <laughs> All right, and you see, you we had mentioned that these are the ten words, you know, at this at this point, rather than focus on them being commandments. And part of the reason for that is. It heightens the connection to God being personal. He doesn't, he doesn't just stay at a distance and give commandments, but he, ha- he has words to share with his people in relationship. Uh, he's, he's not just a king, he's a king shepherd. He comes you know, among his flock and he's with them and guiding them. And the more general word, words, I think helps to communicate that. And one of the other things that's interesting in connection back to creation is that you see that these laws are about regaining what was lost in Eden. It's about regaining that that holiness that was there, that enjoying of God's rest was there, and how he led things back then. And one of the things that I found interesting about this reading of the Ten Commandments. And a lot of times when we read something we, uh, and we have some familiarity with it, we think we just already understand it. And what it means is what we already thought before we read it. So one of the, the questions that I asked myself was, who was the, the primary audience of these Ten Commandments? And without reading it much, I just say, oh, you know, it was all the sons of Israel. That, that's true. It's just everybody in Israel. But as I you know, sought to answer that question in, in reading the text. I looked at verse 17. This is 2017. It says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. It's like, well, this makes the audience a little bit more specific. It doesn't say your neighbor's wife or husband. So I thought, who, who is he primarily addressing here? Well, whoever they are, they have wives. <laughs> and so what's happening here is you know, the leadership that was lost in the garden, the you know, male headship that knew God's command and led by it, he's saying, this needs to be regained, and this is how it happens. You guys have lost this. But to go back to you know, my holiness and rest, you got to go back to God in, instructing through a male representative and how he structured leadership to, to work in the world. He says that needs to be uh, regained and taught to your children. That's the other thing you'll see in Deuteronomy 6. When you had, you know, it said, you know, hear, hear, O Israel, but then it, it narrows into fathers teaching their sons these particular truths. So don't, uh, don't be too familiar with a, a Bible text when you read it, but be willing to ask questions that seem super obvious and try to learn because maybe you're wrong and there's something better to uncover and learning what's actually there, what's actually right. So let's look at Exodus 20, 1 through 21. 
Corey, do you want to read that for us? Yes, sir. Then God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. On it you shall do no, uh, you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother. That your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning, and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us, and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Now you see here there's an emphasis on you know God and his actions. You know, that's how you see this. God spoke all these words. You know, what does he say? He says, I am Yahweh your God. You know, this is where this starts. It doesn't just start with here's a bunch of commandments, but you know, here's some some words in communication to uh, teach you who I am and how I brought you to myself. I didn't just come in as some dictator who defeated you to bark some commands at you, but uh, I brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and his jealousy, as it talks about later, is that you know, he, he's not willing to share his glory with another, as you read in the following commandments of, you know, you shall have no other gods before me. And the reason is because he, he had given himself to them, you know, as, as a bridegroom does to his bride, and when he does that, he says, I'm giving myself to you. I don't want you to be interested in any others. You know, it, it's not that a, a husband's looking for somebody just to give commands to, but to share words and to share his, his life with. And that sort of analogy is made in Scripture, and that's why you know, our theology and our, our 
marriages are so important because they're to be a picture of God's covenant faithfulness. And the implication for Israel is that there's only one God. There, there isn't another. Like when you marry one, you marry one, and you forsake all others in doing that. There's only one God, one creator, one controller of all things, one redeemer. So you can't bring any other pagan ideas, practices, or, or anything before God to where he can see it. You can't bring it in, into his presence. And, and this isn't you know this idea that God's just jealous because you're not giving him the attention that he wants, but it, it's because of the, the goodness of that relationship. You know, the, the best thing for you is to know him and to be dedicated to him exclusively. So his being jealous for his name is the best thing for us. You know, when we think about how we're jealous, we're, when that word's used of us, it's usually a bad sort of thing. But when it's used of God, it's a good thing because he's the only one whose reputation and character anybody ought to be jealous for. It's something that belongs to him alone. Just like you know, God, glory belongs to him alone. You know, we don't give that glory to another. And if we're jealous for something, we should always be jealous for him getting the honor that he deserves rather than for something that we think that we deserve. When he comes here then to tell him, you know, you shouldn't make yourself an idol. Uh, he said, you know, think about how God has revealed himself. He's revealed himself in a burning bush, pillar of cloud and fire here at, here at Mount Sinai. The way he's revealed himself is, in ways that nobody can replicate it. Nobody can say, well, you know, look at this thing that uh, we made to help us to worship God. And, and I hope you can hear the problem in that it's something we made. He says, he says don't do that. He, he wants to be known how he has revealed himself and he doesn't want us to create anything in his likeness uh, what is in heaven or in earth beneath or in the water underneath is that you shall not worship them or serve them, which the idea isn't that you necessarily like bow down to the thing that's created, but you could even use it as it was in church history. There was a point where the Orthodox Church and the Roman Catholics, they were arguing over, you know, can you use images to aid worship? And they said, well, you know, there's illiterate people, so all they all they can do is read the stained glass in the building. So let's try to communicate, you know, God through those sort of things. But then you had other people saying, "Well, God told us to not do that." <laughs> uh, he what he has revealed to us. He didn't give us a picture book. He didn't give us videos. He gave us his written word to know him. Uh, therefore, we, we can't use these other representations because these other, other representations are things that we made, not what he made. You know, they're what we made and we're giving to people rather than what he made and gave to us in his word. Charles, yes. Applying that to the school Bible
Yeah, the, the issue with the, the images that are, are made is you know, you're, you're giving adoration toward that particular thing. And you have to be real careful there because you can think about, I remember this painting I saw once of the, the crucifixion of Jesus and it was very manicured. You know, his, his skin's not torn. There's no blood. It's very restful. You know, he has a garment tied around his waist. And when you look at that, it's like, you know, all the suffering was taken out of it. And, but then the confusing thing is you, when you think about taking up your cross, you think it looks like that. You know, you don't think that it involves suffering or pain or anything like that. So it ends up obscuring your view of Jesus. Or, you know, there's different pictures of, that, that people have made of Jesus. And that's the issue. They, they made them and they give us a representation of them. And we think, well, you know, there's that good shepherd painting. You know, he's like that. But, that. but then what that starts to develop in the mind is he's not the revelation God that I read about. You know, he's this thing that's described and uh, all this fierce judgment coming upon him. He's not like that. He's like the good shepherd painting. And so we have to be really careful of that to recognize that, you know, that isn't Jesus. You know, he never sat down for a portrait. Uh, that's not his image. But the way that, you know, uh, God's image came was in Jesus Christ. He's the only image of God. And then he made it to restore us to his image to, to display his character. So the image of God is to be found in us being restored to him. And so that's where we have to be really careful with our t things that we make. Because you know, this this isn't Jesus. This isn't a picture of Jesus. You know, we got to make that clear with our kids. Uh, the, in, and in our day, we also have cinematography, which what's interesting is behind every every Christian movie, there's never any Christians. Yeah. You know, you'll have Roman Catholics, Seventh Day Adventist, Mormons. Like, why are they so interested in giving us an image of Jesus? And they say, well, because they have a different Jesus and they want you to be able to visualize him the way that they see him. So they create him so that you'll start to think of him like that. Okay, yeah. We had this discussion actually with, with a few pulling kids' Bibles off the shelf. And, you know, when Ida sees this picture, she knows this is about Jesus feeding the 5,000, but there has to be a distinction there that this actually is a Jesus. So we were up in this classroom and she pointed to that picture of the good shepherd that's on the bulletin board. She said, that's God. But what was helpful there is we had learned the catechism. And one of the, one of the questions in the catechism is, can you see God? And the answer is, I cannot see God, but God always sees me. And so all I said when she said, there's Jesus, you know, that's God. I said, can you see God? And she said, no, but he always sees me. And so it was just a little correction yeah. um, to help her understand, like, what you're seeing actually isn't God. And, you know, she's four, so I can only develop that so much. And my kids all know the pictures in the Big Picture Story Bible and in the biggest story. Um, and they've seen those images, but just I've been struggling with this a lot because I come back to but they look at the picture and they know the story behind the picture. But I think that really just helped me in that little correction to see there's something bigger that they're missing when I say, 
this is Jesus feeding the 5,000, in that they, they try and grab onto that rather than God is so much bigger. And even in this room with us, we can't see him, but he always sees us. And so that was just something that started this week in helping me, because I've been trying to think through that a lot and just helping me to see um, <coughs> the bigger reality of God is far bigger than what this picture can show you. God is much more near and imminent to you than what you're seeing in this image that I've been creating. So anyway, I don't know. Yeah, the problem would be, I think if you, like you cut out the picture and you write a Bible verse on the back and you keep it in your pocket and then you pull out, you look at that picture of Jesus to remind you of something about him, yeah. then it would be an issue because you're saying this image is reminding me of this thing, but that thing is so limited that you're not really knowing him as he is. You're limiting him in to something as you see it. So it's like, you know, there used to be these little prayer cards of, Jesus outside of the tomb that you, they would sell at Christian bookstores. They used to be a thing in the past. Christian bookstores, they're gone now. But uh, you would have this little two by three card or whatever and had this picture of the resurrected Jesus and somebody made up some little poem that supposedly Jesus wrote about how great you are. And so you could just look at that and remember that. But you know, that would be a, a modern example of breaking this command because you're given adoration that you're you're giving to God but it's through that image and something that we created because he doesn't because Jesus doesn't look like that and he didn't say those things on the back of the card either so it's just one of those things you got to be super careful with you got to be really clear with your kids you know this isn't Jesus <laughs> Mm -hmm. Yeah, at this point, I'm not convinced that you have to burn them. <laughs> but we also have to... <clears throat> the, two, the two commandments with the most detail in all the Ten Commandments are the ones about uh, not making it an idol and the Sabbath. Guess which ones Israel, out of all the commandments, had the hardest time with? The two with the most detail. Yeah, the two that God was most specific about, Israel had the most problems with. It's like, you know, not make anything in your, not make anything in his likeness. And then it's like, behold your God, you know, this, this golden calf, which, you know, they weren't, they weren't worshiping the golden calf. They were worshiping Yahweh and what he had done, but that they used that to help them to remind uh, you know, of his strength and that he was their, their victor. So they were using that to aid their worship in a wrong way. Uh, with the Sabbath, you know, it, it ended up turning into something that was for themselves. Oh, the Sabbath is so that we can do what we want one day of the week. You know, we, we can relax and spend our time however we want. But the whole point was, you know, it was about God's rest, not their rest. And to remind them that they, they needed to enter into God's rest, and they, they hadn't. Or if they had, to be reminded that it was God who had brought them there. But 
at their point that it was an unfinished work. And in a way, it, it uh, still is until the final exodus happens. Guess which two commandments of all the Ten Commandments we struggle with today? You know, the most debated ones and the most difficult for us to try to figure out are not creating anything in his likeness and the Sabbath. And there is more text and controversy and debates and dialogue over those two commandments than all the others, which, you know, shows us this whole concept. You know, Israel's a microcosm of the world. Everybody's like that. You know, we... The primary things that we struggle with is thinking about God differently than he is. What you see, one of the things that you know, we, we had worked through is that whole concept of when God keeps teaching Israel over and over and over and over, he says, I'm sovereign even over evil. And it's like, nah, but it can't, it can't work like that. He says, look, I said I was going to harden Pharaoh's heart and I did it. I'm like, I don't think it works like that. I said I was going to harden Pharaoh's heart, and I did it. It's like, I don't know about that. I said I was going to harden Pharaoh's heart, and it, and it happened just as I said. I think I get the point. But it has to be taught over and over and over because we, we want to make him in our likeness because we would think, you know, well, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't do things like that, and God's just greater than me, so he would do things the way that I would think about him just better. It's like, well, no, you should never start with thinking about God with something that what you're like, and then just think that he's like you, but super. It's the same thing, just like when you read certain words about like jealous, you think, well, when I'm jealous, it's like this, but when God does it, he's just better at it than me. It's like, no, no, no. We're talking about an entirely different being than you. When that word's ascribed to him, it means something very different than what it means when it's ascribed to you because of who he is. You see that even in the, the use of uh, the word loving kindness there. It's uh, a translated of the word chesed in Hebrew, which mostly gets translated as grace in the New Testament. You know, he's a God of grace, but it's this word that gets used to describe God that it's like, yeah, he, he is loving, he is kind, and his Love is gracious. His kindness is gracious. It pulls it all together. So it's, you know, how, and it's a steadfast, faithful love. So sometimes you'll see it translated, you know, steadfast love, something like that. Because there's, when it comes to God and you try to explain what his, his love is like, you know, how do you contain it in a word and explain it to somebody? <laughs> there's, it's, it, it's more complex than just one word, but you see, it's something that belongs to him alone and that he can show alone. <clears throat> I knew you were going to ask that question, Corey. Not the kid's picture Bible. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's a bunch of Mormon guys. Yeah. Yeah. Just leave it alone. If you have a like a burnable copy, I mean, don't like burn a copy of it, but you know what I mean. Burn it. As <laughs> people don't even do that sort of stuff anymore. They don't burn CDs. That's like a thing of the past. All right. The third commandment. We talked about this last week of not taking 
the Lord's name in vain, which this, this has to deal with keeping his name holy and it being honored. It's not, it's not as we had talked about, it's, it's tied into the sixth through ninth commandments. It's not just how you speak, it's the character of your life as well. Uh, you take the Lord's name in vain when you don't live out his name. You take his nature in vain when you don't live according to the likeness of his nature. You know, you you take his character in vain when you don't live out the character that he's called you to to image him in the world. And that has more to do with just your mouth. So it's just anything that would bring disrepute upon God's name. You know, anything in word or deed that shows irreverence to him or indifference to him. This gets spelled out a little more specifically and you know, don't don't make an oath to somebody in, in God's name and then not perform it. That would be taking his name in vain because God is faithful. He doesn't lie. When he says he's going to do something, he does it. So he says, don't, don't be like that. Because otherwise it calls in to question, you know, his existence. It's like, well, if this person swore by him and this thing didn't happen by him, maybe he's not real. Or maybe he doesn't actually have the power to carry these things out through people. And you know how that, you know, that gets picked up in James. And, well, the Sermon on the Mount and James, where you know, Jesus and then Jesus' stepbrother disciple teaches, you know, let your yes be yes and your no be no. It's like anything more than that is evil because it takes the Lord's name in vain. When it comes to the Sabbath, this, this command in particular gets the most attention of all of them because it, it teaches them that God is the one who makes holy. You know, the, the law wasn't a way to make yourself holy, but it was to teach you that you're unholy and only God can make you that way through his mediator. You need some sort of priestly representative to do that for you and to bring you into God's rest and to see that this isn't your rest, it's his rest, you're outside of it. He needs to bring you into it somehow. And the Sabbath is going to become the sign of the Mosaic Covenant. So you think about the signs so far and the covenants. You have a, a rainbow that reminds us of God bringing rest through judgment. Then you have circumcision, which reminds of you know, the, the need for God to take away the old life and bring you into a new life. And then you have the Sabbath, which instructs you that you need that you're outside of God's rest and you need to enter into it and that only he can do it. <coughs> and so you see here that with this beginning with being about God's words and this section ending with God's rest, God making it holy, you have a complete section there within the Ten Commandments. And that's where we separate this, you know, idea of there being two tables. You know, this one is about your relationship to God. Next one picks up, if you have this kind of relationship with God, you're going to have this kind of relationship with man and land, which was, when you read in the beginning of Scripture, the three primary relationships that 
created humans have is with God, with one another in the land. <coughs> it begins with honor your father and mother in this commandment. The word for honor is translated from the word kabod, which is the word glory, which is tying this to you, know, you glorify God by honoring your parents. You know, it's the, it's the same word, but the glory belongs to, to God alone. And so that's why when you read of this in Ephesians 6, it says, you know, children, obey your parents in the Lord. You know, it's to his glory. It's not just do it so that you can avoid being punished or something like that, but it's do it to honor God because that's ultimately what this is about. The status of father and mother and it being so important within Israel, because remember, they're to be a display of God's character and wisdom to the nations, was a reminder that the foundation of society is the family. The well-being of society hinges on the well-being of family. Uh, it's, it was a way for them to promote the goodness of family, but also to point out when this doesn't happen, that you're, you're sowing the seeds of your own destruction if you neglect this. You know, everything stems from this. And you might uh, remember uh, other sermons or lessons we had when we talked about how God delegates his authority in the world through family, through the church, through also civil government. And that those things are unique, but within that, there's something foundational of the family itself. The church ends up being a family of families. The you know, civil government is even broader in that it's overseeing uh, many other families, but it can't be stable apart from stable marriages. Just like anything, without a foundation, it ends up crumbling down. The church will fall apart. Society falls apart if the family falls apart. So the best thing that you can do to, one of the best things you can do to, to show love to your neighbor is to, to uphold the goodness of family. And that gets spelled out in, you know, you shall not murder. So if you're to value that, I mean, what was, you know, one of the first sins that you see committed in, in Scripture within the first family is Cain murdering his brother. It's like, well, how does family continue if people are murdering each other? So, well, that doesn't work, and it's wrong, as Scripture says, because man is made in God's image, and that it's ultimately an issue of the heart, which is what the 10th the commandment is going to get down to, that all of these out, outward actions come from something inside of you that's off. But we see here that we're to... It shows us what God is like. You know, God's not a murderer. God's the one who gives life. Therefore, we honor him by not murdering and seeking to honor life and to preserve life however we can. And this uh, ties into our little chart here. I remembered it. And this is just something for you to look at a little bit more later, but what you see here is on, on this far right side of it is interpreting the Ten Commandments as a bill of rights. 
But the only way of seeing this is that it's not a bill of your rights, it's a bill of your neighbor's rights. It's a very different perspective because you're not saying, well, this is mine, this is owed to me. But you're saying, you know, this is owed to my neighbor and I'm willing to sacrifice so that he can have it. That's a very different sort of perspective. So it says, you know, love your neighbor as yourself because you would want to claim all of these rights for yourself. Uh, you want to claim a parent's right to respect uh, your, your right to life, your right to purity, your right to property, your right to an honest testimony, your right to uh, home, home and household security. And he says, take all that love that you have for yourself and your reputation and your stuff and put it on other people and see it as you know, a, a parent's right to respect, your neighbor's right to life, your neighbor's right to sexual purity, your neighbor's right to personal property, your neighbor's right to an honest testimony about who they are, their reputation, and what happened. Your neighbor's right to home and household security. So you see there's positive implications towards you know, loving your neighbor by what God says is rightfully theirs. And the command that you shall not commit adultery, you see that God is preserving his original will for marriage and it's true that you know other forms of sex outside of marriage are violations against God's law but you know why this one is highlighted is you should get the principle for all of those other things just from these few words because God says marriage can only be defined one way one man one woman one lifetime and the stability of society hinges on this uh, gospel testimony hinges on this. You know, this is how important this particular thing is. You know, therefore, don't be unfaithful in your covenant relationships so you can show that God is faithful in all of his covenant relationships. And as we'd also talked about, you know, this is because your neighbor also has a right to sexual purity, that you would not wrong anybody else with your sexual impurity because... Uh, this is a sin that not only affects you and your body, it affects somebody else's body as well. You shall not steal. This, this commandment, as we'll see later as we keep going through Scripture, applies to more than just somebody's stuff, but uh, it, it can uh, apply to somebody's uh, virginity or reputation or anything. It's like there's, they just like your neighbor has a right to sexual purity, you don't have the right to steal that from anybody. And so it's going to end up tying into other things. But what is this, what do you think this commandment reveals about God? What does the commandment you shall not steal reveal about God? Yeah, it could, it could be tied to stealing glory, stealing his reputation. Other times, to you know, taking his name in vain. But you put, you know, instead of stealing, what does God do? He yeah, he provides. And see, you know, why did God work in creation week? He worked in order to provide, to give. So, so therefore, why, 
you should work, and it's good, but why do you work? You work so that you can give to others. And you see that in uh, you know, Ephesians and Paul writing to the Thessalonians. Is that, you know, earn your own bread so that you can share that bread. You don't, just, you don't just put bread on the table for yourself. You put bread on the table so you can eat with other people, right? Uh, you know, when he talks about in, in Ephesians, you know, let the thief, you know, stop stealing and start working hard so that he can give to others. Which also reminds us, you know, what, what is our neighbor's implied right in this? If you're not to steal, you, you're loving your neighbor and you're protecting his right to property, to his stuff. Now, you know, it's not a commandment that says you have the right to own things. Like, you're like, oh, man, I don't, you know, I don't have the, the property that I, I want and God owes it to me. That's not, it's like, it's like no, if, if somebody does have something, you don't have the right to steal it. You know, it, it belongs to them. Uh, this would forbid things like socialism, communism, which, you know, some of what's happening here in Israel being given their government it's teaching other governments how they should be ran as well so that they can have a society that has its foundation bound in creation principles, ultimately. So for Israel, that you remember, their purpose is to be a blessing to the other nations. But how can their community be a blessing to, to a giving a blessing to other nations if they're stealing from one another so, or from anybody else? Now, this is going to be a problem with Achan later in the book of Joshua when he's stealing things and he's hiding them in his tent. It's like, this isn't going to work. So it's, you know, it's one of the things to keep up with when you're thinking through the Ten Commandments is, you know, what does it teach about God? What does it teach about loving him? What does it teach about loving neighbor? What does it teach about Israel's witness to the nations? What does it teach about the, the governance of uh, those nations? And then how does it apply to us? Because the way that it applied to Israel still has uh, similar implications and applications for us, just in a different context and under a different covenant, which opens up a lot of really big discussions. But, you know, we want to not neglect to, look, to consider all of those things. Ninth commandment, you shall not bear false witness. Now, notice it doesn't just say you shall not lie. It's more specific to false witness because remember this was given to, to Israel as their governance. You know, this is uh, legal language. The, the reason that they were to abstain from not, not just lying but any sort of deceit or slandering a person or gossiping and sharing bad news from a bad heart or uh, backbiting or vilifying somebody or speaking rashly about somebody's neighbor and the such. You know, it's forbidding all of those things. And within their justice system, it would depend on that. I mean, you, you can't have a, a just and equitable justice system apart from true testimony. Uh, if all you have is false testimony, how can you make any judgment? Uh, the only way that a, a, a justice system can exist is if truth is there. So this, this command calls for honesty and giving testimony and implication. And by implication, it demands that people show respect 
for the rule of law and also basic principles of fairness. And so we don't, we don't bear false witness because God never bears false witness. And the way we love our neighbor is, you know, they have a right to an honest testimony and their reputation being protected. And we want to be a people who, who does that for others. And for Israel and their blessing to the world was to show you need this for a fair and equitable justice in a coherent society. Because if it's, I mean, we're watching it happen. I mean, you just bring in a bunch of lies and then all the lies brings in a bunch of confusion and then the rule of law breaks down. And then it's like, well, you know, if the, if the law's not upheld there, then everybody's just a law unto themselves. Covetousness. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. Your neighbor's wife is male slave or female slave is ox or is donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Now, you can see how the, this commandment moves into the inner desire. It's not just these things that are coming out of you, but it's like, you know, why, are those things, why do those things come out of people? Well, because you lust and you do not have, or you ask and you ask with wrong motives because you just want to spend it on yourself not to love your neighbor. I'm cross-referencing James chapter 4. Great counseling, parenting, discipling text. We see that God isn't just concerned with external conformity of these people. He's concerned with their heart. Uh, he cares about their, their hearts being holy, their, their hearts being in his rest, in him. And this word for... Covetousness is the word that was used to discuss when Eve saw, when she desired the fruit that was on the tree. You know, she coveted that. She wanted more than what God had given her. She wanted something different than that. She thought he was stingy and that he wasn't good. But because the God of creation is good, he is a gracious protector, provider, and guide. We want to image him by not wanting something that's different than what he's given us, something more than what he has provided. <coughs> but this also teaches us that, you know, the way that we love our neighbor is we would want to protect their stuff from being coveted because we recognize if somebody has a, a desire for something that they have, then when it, when it gives... When it yields fruit, it turns into stealing from that person or it turns into starting to speak bad about that person. You know, it can turn into false testimony, it can turn into stealing or killing, <laughs> killing or uh, adultery. It could turn into a lot of things, but it, it starts with this coveting command, which, you know, when Paul, you know, he came down to this one, he said th this was the commandment that, that dug down beneath the surface for me. He says, when the law said, you shall not covet, I found all sorts of covenant, co coveting inside of myself, which I thought, it's kind of like a, a graveyard. You go walk through a graveyard and it, and it looks really nice on the top, you know, with the grass and the flowers, but then when you start digging down into it, there's actually some nasty stuff under the ground. You know, that's kind of what 
the the law is like for a lot of people because you'll go through it's like you shall not murder and people are like well i haven't really done that before and then you put the shovel in you dig up and it's like have you ever been angry at anybody in your heart and like, oh no <laughs> it's that you know at the desire level it's like you've wanted to murder people though and that's what the law does it it, it digs down to the heart of the matter so again you know god's commands here are concerned with a person's soul, not just their outside behavior, which should, you know, that's that's our concern for other people as well. It's not just, you know, behave the way that we want so that you don't inconvenience our lives. But, you know, this is about an issue with your heart that, you know, God requires holiness of you. He desires it and he's willing to give it to to the ones who are born again unto seeking him. But it also teaches us, you know, as Jesus taught, it's, you know, where do all those evil actions come from? You know, how, before they come out of the mouth or from your hands or your feet or whatever, they start in the heart ultimately. So it shows us how deep-rooted evil truly is and that self-righteousness is actually self-deception. And you think, well, look, I look good on the outside. I do, I do this stuff. He says, but what about on, on the inside? I, you're only deceiving yourself because you know that you've done those things that look right to other people with wrong motives. So for Israel as a community, this was a, a way for them to teach that there shouldn't be any sort of class warfare within a society. There shouldn't be the haves and the have-nots. There shouldn't be a, a wealthy class and... A, a lower class under that. But when covetousness is promoted, it promotes envy, hostility, and it makes it impossible for people to work together. I mean, ha, ha, have we not seen that as of recent? And we say, well, look at all those rich people. We should tax them more and give it to these other people. And those other people are like, yeah, that should be owed to us. And people are like, well, look at all those people with white skin they're racist because their skin is white and they owe us something it's all covetousness that's what it is but when you promote that then people think that they're owed something that they're not really owed and a, a society can't exist like that it, it can only fall to to pieces because of the promotion of the breaking of the command of covetousness just like the first human society fell apart in the garden so does every other one Well, on these last few verses, I'll have to be super brief here. <laughs> All right, we're just going to have to pick up on verse 18 next week. So what we'll do here, we'll just uh, close. Any, any comments or questions that you guys have? Here as we end. I think one of the things I walked away with was you know, the goodness of God. It's like, look, look how good he is. Like the, These commandments were better than I thought. There's more wisdom in them than I knew. And I made me think a lot of Psalm 119. It's like, you know, Lord, how, how I love your law. And it makes me 
wiser than my teachers and my enemies because I know how, how you've you know, taught who you are and uh, who I'm to be and that you can make a person not only in right relationship to you but alive unto this law to walk in it. You know, it it's a light unto my path. I think, you know, what, what do you do in this uh, particular situation? And it's boiled down in you know, these 10 words that you can come back to these things and think, well, what, what did God teach about this thing? What would be you know, the implication for my circumstance? Uh, if you understand these commandments, you'll know how to, it, it'll straighten out every path for you. Uh, you'll know what to do because you'll know what God has commanded and you clearly will understand what he has said. And you'll be able to make confident decisions that say, you know, the, the holy and righteous decision is this thing. Yeah. Is that what's going on? There's some that would be that they're they're taking something. Right? Yeah. So yeah. It's really the judgment of the okay. Yeah, it's another display of God's holiness that he won't he won't tolerate those things, but it also ends up being a display of his patience because he'll he'll talk about, you know, people that uh for you know generations even though he made known his grace and gave a witness to them. They refused it. It's never just some sort of quick thing. It's like, you disobeyed me this week, now I'm going to wipe you all out. But he, he used Israel to, to display his holiness and to bring his judgment in, in the world through them, but he never, he never did that without a call to repentance. And any, anybody who would repent would be saved, just like uh, Rahab at Jericho. And at Jericho, when you read that and you think about God's graciousness, you'll start reading, it's like, man, he gave them a lot of warnings before this happened and had this huge ceremony going around them. And, you know, it boiled down to, it's like, you really got a whole week to really think about this and make a decision. But it's like, you, you can be saved if you want to. Muslims said, we don't want it, we'd rather die. It's, and, and that's what they end up getting. But it's also showing too that it's like God owned that place. It was his to be with him. They live in rebellion. They don't they are on the earth at all and stealing the land. Israel didn't even want to go in, they refused at first, right? Yeah. Pushing them to go take it. Yeah. Yeah. It ties back to his holiness and his rest. He's he's showing his holiness. And how does he bring rest to the land? He takes the enemies out of it. But then feels that will you know, but he would never do that to his own people. But then what he does with Israel, he says, you didn't give the land the rest that I told you to give to it, so I'm going to give it its rest by taking you out of it. Mm-hmm. And he basically tells them, you know who the Canaanites are? You guys. Like, oh, I didn't see that coming. And then they end up in the, the you know, Babylonian exile to show that you know, they shouldn't think just because they were born in uh, with Hebrew heritage and connected to Abraham by blood that that just meant oh, you can live however you want he's like no you, you have to enter in by faith just like everybody else does
Yeah, a lot of, a lot of good stuff there. We'll get to Joshua one day too, Lord willing. <laughs> All right, let's close in, in prayer. Our good God, we praise you for your good word that teaches us of your holy character and it gives us an experience of rest to walk in it even now because you have saved us to be alive unto your word. And we praise you, Jesus, that you have fulfilled these commands in our place to give us your record, one that we could never achieve ourselves, and to give us your resurrection power that we could walk in this new way of life by being made a new creation by your spirit. And I pray that we would do so for a testimony of your good name among the nations, among our neighbors, that others would see our lives and understand that we have a good king who has commanded us these things, that the glory belongs not to us, but to you, and that you would draw others to yourself through your testimony through our lives. Amen.